Chapter 9, Escaping Diversion. This quote from Blaise Pascal. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion, and yet this is the greatest of our miseries. For it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves and which makes us thoughtlessly ruin ourselves. Without diversion, we should be in a state of weariness, and this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But diversion amuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. From 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Finding the Spy Professor Jim Stigler did an experiment with American kids to test their focus and grit. He gave them an impossible math problem to test how long they would work on it. How long do you think it was before the average American kid gave up? Answer, less than 30 seconds. When Stigler did the same experiment with Japanese kids, he had to cut the kids off after an hour. Oh, and these were first graders. This difference between the two nationalities isn't a genetic difference. It's a difference in character fostered by different cultural values and environments. For many of us, diversion and ease have taken over the primary place of our God-given capacity for grit and focus. The evidence of our culture's ensnarement in diversions is all around us. It's no secret that our attention spans and tolerances for sustained mental exertion or uncomfortable topics have taken a serious hit. We've already touched on this idea. In Chapter 1, we considered the crippling and shallowing effects of technologies that cater to our cravings. In Chapters 5 and 6, we talked about how our quest to satisfy those desires ensnares us in profound slavery. So why do we accept a slavery that has no literal chains? Why don't we rouse ourselves to freedom? Enter diversion. The really sinister effect of diversion is that it numbs and binds us to our slavery. All it needs to do is draw our attention and energy toward useless things. Then we won't face the flesh, see our idols, or think about our real purpose. From there, our flesh takes care of the rest. In the end, there is no path to spiritual freedom and substance without the conviction that we must escape diversion. Though the situation may be dire in the U.S. right now, diversion certainly wasn't invented here. The 17th century French scientist and mathematician Blaise Pascal saw diversion as the greatest of human miseries because it keeps us from facing what perpetuates all of our other miseries. It's a universal human temptation, but it's almost universally ignored or at least only half-heartedly resisted. Diversions aren't overpowering, but because they seem innocent, most people don't focus urgently on escaping them. One of the Proverbs warns that a lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in king's palaces. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 28. Some things are simple enough to handle, but they still slip past us. Distraction is like that. It takes its toll steadily, but almost imperceptibly. It charms us with a thousand winsome diversions while infiltrating and weakening our heart, mind, and body. Any particular diversion may be innocent on its own terms, but by definition, every diversion diverts us from something that requires our attention. It's easy enough to catch lizards, but still, there they are.
Diversion is a particularly sneaky adversary. It's sort of like a spy sent from the army of sins. It's an expert in being unnoticed, seeming harmless, and slipping past defenses. A good spy uses its enemy's own people and resources against them. Combating diversion is more like counter-espionage than open battle. Our problem is that we are easily persuaded to join the spy in his destruction because the alternative is to expose him, and we've come to love him too much. Diversion is not only a subtle idol, it might be our favorite. Of all our idols, we may rely on this one the most. Marx called religion the opiate of the masses, anesthesia to help them not feel the pain of life. He was wrong. The opiate of choice for humans has always been diversion. Pascal described our condition in this way. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy, not to think about such things. Diversions don't stalk us. We invite it in, eager for some stimulation, gratification, or escape. Running away. It's amazing how much modern people crave constant stimulation. A 2014 study offered startling insight into our need for stimuli and our discomfort with stillness. The study placed participants in a quiet, empty room for 15 minutes. There was nothing for them to do, but they were left with a button that would deliver an electric shock to their ankles. In the course of the 15 minutes, 67% of the men and 25% of the women, rather than sit in a room by themselves doing nothing for a quarter of an hour, chose to inflict on themselves a shock that they earlier said they would pay to avoid. The study's seemingly absurd result begs the question, what's our problem? Why do so many of us prefer something we know is painful over a short span of quiet? It suggests that somehow sitting with ourselves in silence without diversion creates a boredom or anxiety that is more painful than physical pain. How can this be? Pascal called this misery. His words from the 17th century have lost none of their relevance. The only thing which consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet this is the greatest of our miseries. For it is this which principally hinders us from reflecting upon ourselves and which makes us thoroughly ruin ourselves. Without diversion, we should be in a state of weariness. And this weariness would spur us to seek a more solid means of escaping from it. But diversion abuses us and leads us unconsciously to death. Peter Kreef doesn't pull any punches in his commentary on these words. The reality is that we want to complexify our lives. We don't hate to, we want to. We want to be harried and hassled and busy. Unconsciously, we want the very thing we complain about. For if we had rest, we would look at ourselves and listen to our hearts and see the great gaping hole in our hearts and be terrified, because that hole is so big that nothing but God can fill it. When we are left alone with our thoughts, we must acknowledge and reckon with our discomfort. We have no escape from unpleasantness realities, and our hearts violently recoil from the prospect of that exposure. One of our church staff members described her experience with this phenomenon. She said, some time ago, I felt convicted to fast from online media for a month. The itchiness was intensely uncomfortable. After days of feeling my cravings throbbing inside of me, 
Days of sitting in prayer and marveling at what was going on in my head and heart, I began to wonder, what is it about funny YouTube videos that I crave so much? As I prayerfully pondered it, I came to a bitter realization. I was lonely. Really lonely. I realized that most of my close friends either lived out of town or were busy with their married lives. Watching people have fun together on YouTube gave me the pleasant rush of companionship. But in reality, it left me alone in my room, day after day, numbing any misery while keeping me from the very things and the one that would cure it. With the added perspective of hindsight, I can also see that I was harboring the seeds of bitterness, seeds that were sprouting from the fertile soil of a belief that God, and maybe other people as well, was withholding something good from me. Before the fast, I genuinely had no idea that I was lonely, so I never felt the heaviness of it. And I couldn't see that I was allowing the thorns of worldliness to gain ground, thorns with the potential to choke out my faith. I suddenly felt the weight of sadness on my chest and the tightening grip of worldliness around my neck. There, in the silence, with nowhere to run but to God, I began to taste the real healing that he had been holding out to me all along. I had been so afraid of facing the pain that I numbed myself into thinking I didn't need a cure. I had also come to love my diversions so intensely that I tried to guard them from God's view for fear that he would pry them from my hands, leaving me desolate. In the end, my seemingly innocent diversions were masking a deadly disease of the flesh. And the real-time effects of this slavery were that I would stay up too late, robbing the next day of focus and energy to serve God as a steward. When others needed my best, I was too distracted and undisciplined to be of much use. When I tried to exercise discipline to improve, my undisciplined will gave out prematurely. I couldn't carry my own weight, and my constant craving meant I couldn't even enjoy God's gifts. I couldn't steward. I couldn't grow. I couldn't be satisfied and I couldn't take steps to correct my course. With this revelation, the Spirit began His work of renewing my mind to be like that of Christ, and I took specific actions to cooperate with Him in that work. In the end, it took five months of cutting myself off from the Internet at home and some highly regimented spiritual discipline to get back on track. Getting to bed on time allowed me to feel and think again, and it strengthened my will. Over time, I was able to let go of the bitterness I was feeling toward God, and I rediscovered the sweetness and satisfaction of His companionship. This soothed my ache, while also giving me the energy and attention to pursue the relationships that were available to me. The craving hasn't gone away completely, but I come to Him with it now, rather than hiding from Him to satisfy it. The deadly secret of escapist diversion is that we aren't evading anything, except that which would make us well. Where is it? You're swimming in it. Our attraction to diversion needs more focused attention than ever, because our lives are increasingly saturated by powerful and beneficial new tools. Most of these new tools have screens, but now we even have voice-activated digital companions at our command. My four-year-old loves ordering hours around, these tools open numerous and constant portals for diversion, leaving no moment of our day when we don't have the option to distract ourselves immediately in precisely the way we prefer. 
Diversion isn't just more immediate, it's much more captivating, too. These technical changes, which are highly physiologically addictive to our brains, make newer generations of diversions more intensely engrossing than ever before. Consequently, we need never face uncomfortable thoughts or strain ourselves. Diversions are a quadruple threat. One, they are always present, even in our pockets. Two, they offer immediate service. Three, they offer a nearly infinite variety in likes, games, news, and so on. And four, they engross our senses, blocking our less noisy rivals. The very instruments that could enable us to steward to achieve new heights of creativity and productivity are, in many cases, actually distracting us from both. Technology offers real and incredible benefits. But if we don't learn to master it, it will master us. Grabbing the Salmon Diversion is hard to recognize, mainly because we think of it as something else. Leisure, relaxation, fun, sustenance, hobbies, and so on. It comes in small, quick ways, and it's often pulling us toward things that are fun or harmless in themselves. After all, diversion isn't demanding our allegiance. It just wants our attention for a few minutes. And what's wrong with that? Aren't these things perfectly permissible? Yes, most of them are. However, this is precisely the mentality in which diversion thrives. Discerning when good things like relaxation, leisure, and fun have become diversions can be a little like trying to grab a salmon without killing it. How do we reject the idol of diversion without replacing it with the idol of legalism, like taking hold of the salmon by sticking a harpoon through it? The Bible teaches us how to think this through in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12-20 through 20, and chapter 10, verses 23-11, through 11, verse 1. In both cases, the Christians in Corinth have argued, but isn't it permissible to do blank? Paul's answer isn't a simple yes or no. Instead, he offers four gospel categories to reveal if we are making excuses for being diverted from our real purpose. He implicitly asks and answers these questions. 1. Is it beneficial for your true good? 2. Is it constructive for the true good of others? 3. Will it master you? And 4. Does it align with who you are in Christ? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the issue is, strangely enough, whether going to prostitutes is permissible leisure if you're a Christian. In Greek cities, brothels were public, legal, and used frequently by men of all ages. It was a normal male diversion, even for married men. They said, food for stomach and stomach for food, as a euphemism for their sex drive, arguing that we shouldn't deny our natural cravings. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. What's wrong with a little diversion? Paul's response is direct. This fails all four tests. It isn't beneficial. It isn't constructive. It will master you. And if you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and part of Christ's body, how can you unite yourself with a prostitute? That's insanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, 19 through 20. The issue in 1 Corinthians 10 is whether a Christian could eat meat from animals that were sacrificed in dedication to pagan gods, which was pretty much all the meat in the market in some cities. For this one, the tests lead to a different answer. Since the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the meat belongs to God, not to Zeus or Poseidon. So it's fine to eat it. 
Question four checks out, and the others aren't relevant. But if you're eating it in a temple festival in honor of the false god, you can't eat it because you're participating in worshiping pagan gods. Test four doesn't check out in that situation, nor do one and two. If you're in a home and someone says, this was offered to an idol, or this meat is in honor of Zeus, that is, if your host makes an issue of it, then don't eat it. Eating it in that situation isn't beneficial or constructive for anyone's faith. Questions one and two don't check out. For something to be permissible, all four questions must check out. If it's not permissible, then, in the best-case scenario, it's a diversion. It's diverting you from your purpose, identity, virtue, and love. It's confusing your ability to have the mind of Christ and is not in step with the Spirit. Okay, let's bring it into our times. Some leisures are plainly sins in that they can't be squared with question four. Using pornography, for example, doesn't pass the fourth test. Nor does women reading relationally pornographic novels. Gossiping about people would fail the fourth test. So would shoplifting or beating people up for fun. Such things can't be wholesome leisure, even in moderation. But what about eating, entertainment, sports? How do we know if we're falling into a diversion mentality? The answer is found in the first three questions. Is it beneficial to your true good or contributing to your growth in spiritual substance? Is it constructive for the true good of others? Is it likely that what you're using will start using you? These questions require us to be discerning. The answer isn't always obvious. However, with a little honesty, humility, and community, we can get pretty good at catching when something permissible is becoming a diversion. The minute you see it diverting you, it is no longer an innocent enjoyment. It is espionage, a spy in the gates. Diversion doing double duty. Discerning diversion has one major complicating dynamic. Diversion not only edges in before we engage the focus necessary for discernment, but it weakens our ability to focus at all. We can see this in the testimony earlier in this chapter. Focus is like a muscle. It can get in shape and fall out of shape. Disciplines like studying the Bible pay a double dividend. We learn more about God, and we also strengthen our minds and our passions. Diversion also charges a double cost. The gratification-distraction effect of diversion doesn't just keep our attention off of Christ. It deadens our passions for Him, while our focus atrophies like an unexercised muscle. By deadening our passions and weakening our focus, diversion essentially sucks the oxygen away from the flame of our faith. All the right ingredients for spiritual fire may be there, but without the oxygen of attention and time, nothing will burn in us. There won't be any passion. This is why the Bible bids us in Romans 12, verse 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. This verse demands that we do something to keep up our passion for and devotion to God. We can't have a passive attitude about loving Jesus. He's not a TV show. We have to actively give God the time, focus, and attention to keep the fire burning. We have to intentionally flex the muscles of attention, focus, and concentration instead of accepting the weakening allurement of diversion. Yet, 
we need to go one step deeper to see the thing that keeps the typical person spinning in a gratification-distraction cycle until his fire for Christ burns softly or is extinguished entirely. We have talked about the fact that our attention spans and grit have weakened. We've talked about how technology has made diversions more intense and gripping. We've even talked about how diversion slips past our discernment like a spy. But why do we get tricked by this spy so often? Is it just how our brains work? Is it just the reality of chemistry? Why didn't we seem to want to be led by the Spirit? Why can't we keep this lizard out of our lives? Scripture gives us two more images that are helpful for understanding this idea. One is a very short story told by Jesus. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 through 46. The other is from the story of the Israelites after they had been liberated from their slavery in Egypt. In Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, we find, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. These stories are similar. Yet, they couldn't be more different. In both stories, people long for something they see as valuable. But in the first story, the merchant does something hard to get what's truly valuable. In the second, the Israelites longed for different food because they were tired of their discomfort. Even more importantly, in the first story, the merchant sees real value. And in his passion for the prize, he focuses all his resources to get it. In the second story, the Israelites want to escape their hardships. They wish they were somewhere else, and they become delusional about how good they had it in Egypt, the land of their slavery and genocide. They daydream about the foods they ate. They even say they ate at no cost. Of course, they didn't pay for it. They were never paid for any of their work, because they were slaves. The version had served up what it always does in the end. Delusion. The Very Good News For all the slipperiness of the spied lizard of the version, its remedy isn't that complicated. In the story of Jesus we just shared, the merchant saw something valuable and believed it was worth whatever it cost to have it. The same is true for us. In and through Jesus, God has given us everything we need for divine life in Christ and the spiritual substance of godliness. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we find, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's the NIV, 1984. God is able not only to give us the liberation of life and godliness, He is able to help us sustain our focus and passion for the truth. He can keep us from the delusion that we were better off when we were slaves by unmasking our diversions for what they are. 
In Second Peter, this immediately follows the encouragement to believe in Jesus. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. That's from Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, NIV 1984. The faith that escapes diversion is the faith that believes making every effort to grow in godliness is part of the prize. It's the faith that believes that God gives us something of infinite value on the road of gracious striving and discipline, like the merchant selling everything he had. This faith, and it alone, can see diversion for the thief it is, and can embrace the discipline that leads to substance. In Our Joy One of the best examples of a life changed by escaping diversion is the life of William Wilberforce. He is remembered as a courageous and unstoppable force in the campaign to abolish slavery in Great Britain. He, perhaps, could be a poster boy for being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, ESV. He dedicated his life to a war in which, in the face of intense resistance, he persevered 20 years before his first victory and 46 years to finally reach his goal. One person said of him, It is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit, which is so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous from blows. That's 18th century British talk for punch the guy over and over and you can only make him stronger. But he was always like that. In his early years, Wilberforce freely indulged in all the privileges and comforts of his fortunate birth, having a taste for gambling, fine food, and engaging company. Even his position in Parliament was more in service to his own reputation and gratification than to the good of the British Commonwealth. Reflecting on that time, Wilberforce regretted. He said, The first years I was in Parliament, I did nothing, nothing, that is, to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. Following his conversion to Christianity, Wilberforce bemoaned the shapeless idleness of his past. He was thinking particularly of his time in college at Cambridge, the most valuable years of life wasted and opportunities lost, which can never be recovered. This realization compelled Wilberforce to waste no more hours, to lose no more years. Wilberforce wrote in a letter, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. John Piper calls this the difference between cardiac Christians constant and regular like a beating heart, and adrenaline Christians, sudden and intense, then quickly fading. Piper commented on this when he said, in other words, with 15 years to go in the first phase of his battle, Wilberforce knew only a marathon mentality rather than a sprinter mentality would prevail in this cause. He filled his days with voluminous study of the Bible and of ideas he had never been diligent enough to master in his younger days. 
He called these and other disciplines trifling sacrifices when compared to the frivolous pleasure of dissipation or the course of gratifications of sensuality. His discipline was not sustained by simple force of will or guiltiness of conscience. He was enraptured by a greater glory, one that eclipsed his other desires. Like the man in the parable who found the pearl of value, Wilberforce found a treasure for which he would joyfully give up everything else he had. The Invitation Escaping diversion takes sweat. It is a form of gracious striving, but it's not mainly an accomplishment of effort. It is a question of faith. Do you think that growing in godliness is part of the great treasure of Christ? Are Jesus and His work so beautiful to you that becoming like Him is as valuable as escaping hell or gaining heaven? Do you see the character of God as right, good, noble, beautiful, and honorable? This is all part of the knowledge of Him who called us, and part of very great and precious promises. The goal of these promises is that we would participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption of the world. But making every effort to add virtue to our faith requires that first we have faith in the value of Christ's virtue, His kindness, self-control, perseverance, holiness, and love. In the end, the best reason to be turned by faith resolutely against aversion and toward discipline is that Jesus did so to save us. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke 9.51 A more literal translation would be, He firmly set his face to proceed to Jerusalem. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him there. Even in his day, a thousand diversions were available to him which would have seemed infinitely more pleasant. There were pretty girls everywhere. There were feasts to enjoy and beautiful places to explore. There was respect to be gained. But if Jesus had been distracted from his misery, we would still bear all of ours without a remedy. You have to see that. You have to focus on it and give it your attention. You have to let it percolate in your passions. Don't let your attention flutter. Every day, look on his work. Look on every episode, every act, every benefit, every implication. Be astonished. Let it lead you with constant and regular exertion rather than with sudden and violent ones. Learn to see the disciplines of substance as trifling sacrifices. See that your spiritual substance is both part of what motivated Jesus' resoluteness and what his work was done to accomplish. Focus on this and let it stoke your passion and zeal for God.